Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome everyone to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Um, seem to have kind of an audio glitch there, but that's all right. Uh, my name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. We have an interesting show coming up for you on uh, the ISM numbers. Lou and I were last week at the ISM conference in Orlando, Florida. We learned a lot of interesting insights there. We have a new person on today, Tim Fiore, who is going to be the chair of the uh, manufacturing report on business. Brad Holcomb is retired, and we uh, we encourage uh, Brad to have a great time in retirement. We wish him the best, and we look forward to chatting with uh, Tim Fiore on a regular basis. We also have Anthony Nevis, who talks about the non-manufacturing report on business. But before we get to our guests and talk about next week's show, Lou, how about what happened last week and a little bit of news? Well, last week, uh, as you already uh, ruined my lines here, uh, we were in Orlando <laughs> at, the IS, at the ISM annual conference where General uh, Colin Powell was a keynote speaker and David Cameron, the former prime minister of the U.K., was there. Uh, very interesting uh, conversations. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, security issues, uh, we were not able to get any direct one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation with them, uh, which is understandable, uh, especially since uh, what happened yesterday and twice before in the U.K., so, uh, so be it. Uh, yes, you're right. Brad Holcomb has retired, and uh, he was on our show 42 times. And that entitled him to get our dandelion yellow jacket. And uh, that was uh, filmed and audioed, and it's on our website at mfgtalkradio.com. And uh, that was a, a fun, fun event. Uh, and there was a lot of interesting people there that we uh, met and talked to. Uh, we do have, uh, I don't know, half a dozen or eight interviews if you go to our website, you can tune into those discussions. Uh, we had uh, one of them in particular, the new president of ThomasNet, uh, a, a terrific fellow by the name of uh, Tom Upoff. And Tony Upoff. Tony Upoff. We have too many Tims and Toms in our world here. Uh, he, he's terrific. He's got uh, great foresight into... Uh, how to move ThomasNet, the 125-year-old family-run business, and uh, I think he may be the first non-family person running that company, uh, so we wish him uh, a lot of luck uh, with that. So tune into that, and actually you can hear that interview, and you can hear his uh, insight for going forward with uh, ThomasNet. News, a uh, couple of news items here, and we we constantly have these discussions about jobs and uh, unemployment and not enough people and so on to fill the jobs in manufacturing. Uh, we have uh, I found an item about uh, the drug testing issue here in the United States, which is 
uh, the drug situation has gotten incredibly worse, a uh, significant increase where uh, applicants either will not take the drug test uh, or if they do, they can't pass it. And uh, I've got some uh, stats here uh, that were put out by the uh, Quest Diagnostics Test Drug Testing Index, which was uh, published about a week or so ago. And that, uh, for example, uh, cocaine has uh, increased uh, this past year by uh, 12% across the country. That's really, uh, that's a lot, no matter what way you slice it. It's a lot of money also, so, you know, whatever <laughs> kiss you enjoy, I guess. Um, ma marijuana, which is uh, still illegal in a lot of places, uh, also uh, in Colorado and in Washington went up 10%. The rest of the country only went up 4%. What a surprise that is. Um, also in the amphetamine world, 8% increase. And uh, heroin, however, has dropped a little bit. Point is, we hear all about those who can't get jobs and hear that they're all laying back, unemployed, smoking pot, and uh, not out looking for jobs and or going for training to develop new skills if, in fact, your particular industry that you've been in is being washed up, like coal, for example. Next item, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump's new proposal would defund the Manufacturing Extension Program. They're not looking to cut it back. They're looking to cut it out. That's talking about a $124 million drop going to MEP. MEP is where they train uh, people, they train companies uh, to be able to develop new methodology and new thinking about how to run their businesses, how to train people, and the new uh, budget gets rid of the $124 million. The sad part about that is that the government doesn't pay for all of MEP's budget. Uh, MEP generates an equal share in doing certain activities that raises money. So the, they actually contribute 50% of their own budget. How they're going to be able to function, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure they know. Uh, we have spoken with uh, the NJMEP CEO, John Kennedy, no relation, and uh, they have their concerns, and uh, we're, we're here to support them, help support them, but they've got a serious problem, and I don't think that this is going to be re reversed uh, anytime soon. Uh, item three, my last item today, 3D printing. Uh, it's been uh, 3D printing of organs. It seems as though that the waiting list for people waiting for organ transplant has just gone way out of whack. It takes three, four, five years for a person to uh, receive a organ donor. And it comes down to the following number. A person waiting for an organ dies every 30 seconds in this country. 
it's a huge number, and they've been doing a lot of research. The country of Israel has been working on this for years, uh, and we are now uh, here doing the same thing. And it's kind of interesting that the way they do this, the way they grow an organ, is they take the cells of a person's organ, and they actually grow the cells, and they if any of you know or understand the methodology of 3D printing, it lays out layers of cells as they grow. And in between each layer, there is a non-toxic plastic that is used to help hold and bind these organ, uh, the layers of uh, cell uh, creation together. Um, a year ago, they actually grew a baby's ear uh, and it took about a month for the whole process to take place. And that ear actually is now growing living tissue. So there's, there's hope for those who are waiting for uh, organs. The technology is very much alive and very much uh, uh, being uh, developed, and uh, it's uh, all over the country. Uh, they are actually calling it bioprinting as opposed to 3D printing. So that uh, I think that's pretty exciting news, especially for those who are waiting for organs, and uh, I hope that they develop this real quick. Tim? Yeah, very interesting things happening in medical manufacturing developments in that arena. If any of you remember the Star Trek series on television that ran for three years from 1965 to 1968. You'll remember that Dr. McCoy had a device called a tricorder, which he passed over your body to see whatever was going on with your body was recorded in the tricorder and displayed on a computer. There are now two companies developing tricorders, and they're moving them through the FDA, and it looks like it could be reality in 2018. So, you know, when we talk about the skill gap and what kind of worker are we looking for, uh, wow, uh, pretty intelligent folks. By the way, next week we've got two very interesting conversations taking place. We are going to speak with the head of CEI Capital Management. Uh, it happens to be a wholly owned subsidiary of Coastal Enterprises, and what they do is provide tax credits and development in low-income cities and towns for financing for business development. Charlie Spees is the uh, CEO of that operation, and we'll be speaking with him. And we will also be talking to Air Freight, an Air Freight bidding group uh, where you can go online and bid for Air Freight. Air Freight can be very expensive, um, and this is an opportunity for you to find a, a less expensive, more efficient, air freight company with a lot of great reporting. We'll be speaking with them on next week's show. So we've got some interesting shows coming up. Stay tuned for those next week, but let's talk to our guests now. We're here with Tim Fiore, who is the chair of the Institute for Supply Management's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. He's taking over for Brad Holcomb on the manufacturing report on business that we have broadcast on the first business day of every month. And welcome to the show, Tim, uh, for your first time uh, giving the report on business for manufacturing. Uh, so uh, thanks and good morning, everyone. Thanks, Lou, and thanks, Tim, for having me. And 
I want to thank Brad for his many years of uh, really great service and uh, strong analysis leading the uh, the Business Survey Committee. Uh, I want to try to give an, as accurate a picture as possible based on the inputs that I get from my fellow supply managers. So with that, this is my first uh, report for the month of May, and uh, we have a strong month. The PMI is closed at 54.9, which was up from last month's 54.8, slight increase. Uh, more importantly, the sub-elements, the five sub-elements that make up the PMI, the first one, new orders, was up two points to 59.5, a really strong number. Uh, employment was up 1.5 points to 53.5 from 52, another strong number. And our raw material inventories was up uh, 0.5 to 51.5, which was a good uh, good increase. Those were all positive to the PMI. Uh, they were offset by production being down 1.5 points to 57.1, still from 58.6, which is still a very strong number for production. And our supplier deliveries were down 2 to 53.1, uh, as we had fewer reported supplier slower deliveries from suppliers. So that indicates that we have suppliers that are uh, able to keep up with demand better than they were the prior month. And uh, as a result of that, there's probably less stress on the supply chain. So out of the elements that make up the PMI, we had no large single swings this month. Uh, we did have a significant swing on the prices side and also on the customer inventory side, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, for me, there's, there's an overall move to uh, no change from the prior month. Uh, and we had more of our percent of participants report, same as last, last month, in uh, new orders in production, employment, uh, deliveries, and inventories. So uh, things seem to be moving more towards a little bit of, of normality. I think, uh, you know, as far as uh, prices are concerned, we uh, went from 68 to 60, re still really a strong number, but if you look at the prices up and prices down uh, section, we have more in the prices down section this month than we've had in quite some time. We have steel both in the prices down and the prices up section, which means that it's kind of in transition. And if you recall, steel has been uh, generally in the prices up for the last uh, 12 or 13 months, and it's now showing up in prices down. So there's probably some relief coming in steel prices, all forms, all shapes, which will uh, bleed itself through to PO prices and end item prices that uh, the manufacturers produce. So uh, a lot of the stuff that's being noted on the price side is global commodity-related. Uh, you can see that there's uh, copper noted in there. Steel, although it is a global commodity, it's not priced globally, but uh, what affects one region does tend to affect the prices in others. Uh, there's some indication that uh, oil may be stabilizing in the 50-some-odd dollar range, and natural gas has been down for quite some time. Uh, as I mentioned, copper is down in price, which is a real positive if you're if you're looking for lower prices. So. So for me, what that means is as a, as a supply manager, I would feel much more comfortable in planning on laying in longer order streams, you know, placing longer-term agreements, uh, not feeling that prices are going to drop on me with a long-term agreement. And when you let, uh, when you let more long-term agreements out, it provides more assurance of supply because suppliers then have a, a much more uh, assurance that they will be building a product for a period of time and will invest in the product and hire people and so on. So... 
So I see uh, prices dropping a bit as being a positive from a supply chain manager standpoint. Uh, on the other hand, we also have uh, employment issues, a lot of comments from the, uh, the business council that they're having trouble filling factory worker positions. Uh, the, we're seeing more and more come in every month. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a question of uh, if they can fill the positions, it's when. And most likely there's quite a bit of overtime being spent right now to support the, the lack of available manpower. Uh, but uh, as, as you know, employment isn't something that can be turned, on, turned off and turned. It can't be turned on really quickly. And even turning it off uh, doesn't happen so quickly. So this is something that's going to have to uh, make its way through the manufacturing cycle here. And we'll probably see it as an issue for the next three or four months. So uh, overall, the summary here, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll wrap yeah, it up and we'll open it up for some questions. <clears throat> so, Great. you know, in summary, the orders, order inputs are strong. The, uh, the backlog, backlog number is still a very positive number. We, uh, we saw production decrease for the month, but it's still very strong and growing at 57, plus or minus. Uh, supplier deliveries are improving. Prices are dropping. Uh, employment is growing. Uh, and the only issue I think I have, uh, based on the inputs that have come in, is that we have a customer inventory number that uh, is up four points, and uh, I, I would prefer to see that number as being too low and is moving now towards being uh, about right, uh, which means that we're building product for customers' inventory and it's not being consumed. So if that number continues to grow, uh, I would have uh, some concern about that. So with that, I'll open it up to, uh, to Lou and Tim, and we'll, let's have a conversation. Uh, Tim, uh, uh, Tim ISM. Uh, just wanted to give a support to these five numbers that you uh, presented. Uh, that All Metals and Forge Group, uh, which is our uh, other company, and we're supplying uh, steel forgings. The last two months, and particularly this past month of May, uh, also our numbers have gone up. Uh, our backlog has gone up. Our new orders have gone up. Uh, production is, is around the same place. So we're we're kind of right in the mix with uh, the ISM numbers. So uh, that's always a good thing. And it's actually for the last 25, 30 years, uh, our numbers always seem to follow your numbers. So we're consistent. Good. Tim, yeah, I uh, think it's... Uh, it's clearly been the case that uh, Lou has followed the ISM for some 40 years, and uh, it's been a kind of a very reassuring report, Tim, that comes out every month from ISM. Uh, I know that it is a, uh, a fairly steady report. It's very consistent with last month's. Um, you know, we always hear about a term they'll probably retire by the end of the year as please don't use it anymore. But are, did any of the respondents indicate that there were any headwinds that they were facing as they moved uh, move through May? Well, yeah, I think there's still uh, there's still issues around uh, being able to get access to materials. Uh, I, I think there's still uh, there's supply chain issues around their ability to purchase the the types of stuff that they want at the time frames that they need it. But I think that's starting to relax a little bit. Uh, there were quite a few comments that popped up around labor, as I mentioned earlier. 
And uh, there are comments now coming in uh, around issues that affect the nation and how they might affect them. So, for instance, we have one comment here about uh, it came from the transportation equipment sector. Quote, economy is still strong, but the political climate can change things very quickly. And, you know, most likely that's a comment that's related to emissions issues that uh, are in the forefront of the news these days as to whether we stay in the, uh, in the climate accord or not. And if you do uh, a little bit of research in this sector, you know, it's, it's automotive, it's uh, aircraft, it's trucks and things. And, you know, a lot of those suppliers are global in nature, and they have global products, global platforms. And they still have to meet emissions rules uh, for Europe, for instance. Europe and the U.S. have emissions rules that are very similar. So you have to deploy the technology to meet the European need. And now they won't be able, if, if things change compared to where they were, they won't be able to deploy that technology in the United States and command the, the, uh, the cost increases slash price increases that they would get. So, and it's going to make their job a lot more complicated, I think. That's, uh, that's one of the issues that comes out. You can hear a lot of CEOs now talking about that, that uh, you know, we're going to continue to believe that we should stay in the climate accords independent of what the U.S. does, uh, and so on and so on. You know, I think the other issue that kind of popped up here is the, uh, the Canadian lumber tariff, the software tariff that was announced about a month ago, and you know, we're already receiving comments about that. I, I don't think the supply managers know yet of what it's going to mean to them, but clearly they're taking steps to address it. And as a minimum, it's going to mean increased cost, and as a maximum, it's going to mean uh, increased cost with a lack of available sources, uh, uh, you know, a problem with getting supply. So, uh, and, you know, these things, you can see what's going on and, you know, where the U.S. is going, and in many cases the stuff bleeds over into business, and if it bleeds over into business, it ends up in manufacturing, and, and we hear about it. It, it seems as though that uh, the uh, the uh, implementation of tariffs on products, whether it's Canada or any other country, if we keep on doing that, adding tariffs, they will add tariffs, and we, the uh, citizenry, will wind up being the ones that actually are the ones who pay the taxes uh, or the tariffs. Uh, it seems almost foolhardy for us to be uh, playing this game, and you know, I don't mean to get political because we try not to get political in this uh, on MTR, but it does seem as though that we can't talk about manufacturing anymore without talking some aspect of politics. Yeah, good, good comment, Lou. Uh, you know, I, I agree. So you know, uh, you know, we just came from the international ISM conference uh, last week, and. You know, there's no doubt that supply managers are free traders. We're, we're absolute believers in free trade. You know, we also believe uh, that uh, in order to have a healthy economy, you have to have strong employment with high-quality jobs and hopes for people to move up in their jobs so that there's ability. We've always had class mobility in this country, and we need to maintain that. But uh, I don't think that there's any supply managers that truly believe uh, in their heart that uh, putting up artificial barriers is going to benefit uh, themselves uh, or the country in the moderate to longer term. It, it might benefit their country in the short term, their company in the short term, uh, you know, like the things that are being discussed around steel. But longer term, it's not a benefit to the country. And uh, we, we believe in free and open competition. 
And in order to do that, you, you really do not want artificial barriers. So, uh, so we'll see. But there's a lot of talk because there's a lot of emotion. And, and you know, but I think you know, just Tim's perspective on this is there's a lot of smart people in uh, in Washington, and uh, they're listening to the business community. And uh, things will work themselves out without some major disaster occurring. Tim, you make a very interesting and important point on uh, any tariffs, particularly the Canadian lumber tariff. And obviously you have your pulse on or your thumb on the pulse of uh, uh, supply chain and purchasing. Um, This is the first I'm hearing about companies indicating that they want to stay in and may stay in the Paris Climate Accord even if the country doesn't. I find that fascinating, Jeff. Well, I mean, uh, the, the one that really jumps to mind, I mean, you know the General Electric is uh, definitely saying we should stay in. And uh, the other one that kind of jumps to mind is uh, uh, Daimler Chrysler Trucks, <clears throat> which uh, they own Freightliner, which is the biggest manufacturer in the United States, last I knew. So, and they're, they're, uh, they're strong advocates for, you know, the climate accords, and they said that they, you know, they have to continue anyway because they have to design the systems for the U.S. the same as Europe. And, and it's the same thing with Volvo. You know, Volvo uh, owns Mac and Volvo in the United States, and they're, they're an international company based out of Sweden. So uh, the only U.S. company that builds heavy-duty trucks is Packard so, and, and Navistar. But, the, you know, a lot of it is international. And uh, it's a lot more economical for them to develop a technology that they can use in the U- U.S. and Europe versus just using that technology in Europe and or the U.S. Uh, just as a side point, uh, yesterday, uh, Citibank also jumped in on this and uh, is requesting that we stay in the uh, Paris uh, Agreement. So there's going to be more and more as the days go by. But I think t- today he makes his announcement in the Rose Garden. So we'll see what kind of effect uh, corporations have uh, on the president's decision-making. Yeah, it, it, so it affects, you know, it affects quality of life. It affects our ability to strike deals around the world. And in the end, it affects business. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Very true. Tim, as we wrap up this segment, because we – just kind of brought you on to the show, and I didn't give you an opportunity to talk to our listeners about your background. I wonder if you could share a little bit about your background and how you ended up with uh, the Institute for Supply Management. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks. So so I spent 40-some-odd years in the manufacturing sector. Uh, all of my career has been in supply. Uh, worked for, uh, spent most of my career with United Technologies, but also worked for Many other really, you know, top companies: Rider Systems, Selenis, uh, Terex, ThyssenKrupp. So, I had a uh, what a great career. Loved loved the function. I'm actually a second generation. My father uh, was a first, and I actually have a daughter who's a third generation supply management person. And she's married to a, a guy who's a, a top-notch supply management person too. So, it's kind of in our blood. Um, as far as ISM is concerned, you know, the light kind of came on in the mid-'90s for me, um, first through uh, CAPS, CAPS activity, and then into ISM. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, the chair of the board of advisors for CAPS for a number of years and also to be on the board of directors for ISM for uh, a four-year stint, which uh, 
very proud of and I was happy to serve. So, you know, I see ISM as the, it's the leading organization for supply managers around the world. It's got a great history, uh, great people uh, doing some really outstanding things going forward. And I was very happy when they asked me to take on the PMI after uh, Brad uh, decided to retire. So uh, it kind of fits in my wheelhouse. Uh, I've done a lot of global business throughout my career and uh, with a lot of multinational companies and have had to stay involved with uh, the economics around the regions and around the world. And this allows me to use my uh, skills to, to the extent that I can. So happy to be involved. Just remember, Tim, it's going to take a minimum of 42 shows before you get a yellow jacket. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you raised the bar, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. They're always improving. <laughs> I like that. But, but you don't have to retire to actually get the jacket, so we'll be glad to award it uh, a couple of years down the road. Tim, we've enjoyed having you with us. We appreciate your insights, and we look forward to your report next month on the first business day of the month. Okay, Tim and Lou. Hey, thanks very much. I appreciate being on the phone and uh, glad to be able to pass out what uh, almost 400 supply managers believe is going on in, in their business uh, for the last month. So talk to you guys soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, thanks. And we've been speaking with Tim Fiore, who is uh, the chair of the Institute for Supply Management Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. They put out the Purchasing Managers Index or the PMI report every month called the Manufacturing Report on Business, a number that's at 54.9 this month, very strong, and we are looking good as we head into June. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be right back. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Elevate your career and stay ahead of the curve with EISM. Brought to you by the Institute for Supply Management. EISM is the first on-the-go lifestyle-compatible learning initiative in the industry. It features hyper-short 15-minute modules and guided learning courses that can be completed in as few as three weeks just right for you or your team. It's the world's largest one-stop online learning shop for supply management. Register today at ismelearning.org. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. 
Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here with Anthony Nieves, who is the chair of the Institute for Supply Management's Non-Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. He puts out with his uh, team the non-manufacturing report every month, a report on business, and it looks very good this month. Anthony, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you. We appreciate seeing you at the ISM conference. Uh, why don't you give us a kind of a quick rundown of what the ISM's uh, non-manufacturing index looks like for this uh, past May? Well, as we look at the release for May, uh, the NMI composite index came in at 56.9%, down slightly from the April reading of 57.5, down the 0.6 percentage points. Overall, we continue to see uh, good growth in the non-manufacturing sector. It's just come off a bit from the uh, prior month, which was at a very high rate uh, when you look across the various indexes that comprise the composite. And what we see here with 17 industries reporting growth, uh, the sector uh, seems to be on its way to uh, this uh, maintaining its uh, pattern that we've seen develop for the first uh, you know, five months of the year. And, and since mining falls into the non-manufacturing realm, how is mining doing? Well, you know, mining, that's a, that's a great question because when you look at mining, uh, and let's take a roll the clock back to last year, 2016. Mining was actually holding back this sector because it was one of the few um, uh, industries that was uh, just going uh, wasn't doing well. And uh, when you look at mining now, it's kind of in the in the top half of uh, the group of 17. Uh, it came in with its index uh, reading on the composite at 59. So it's uh, a little bit above the actual uh, uh, composite reading. And uh, it's been chugging along quite well, quite nicely in 2017. Well, that's good. Is that uh, a function of, and it may not be, the current administration's back off on some of the challenges for mining, or is mining just recovering because they're getting smarter about mining? Well, mining was recovering even prior to uh, the results of the election and the uh, current administration going into place uh, with their policy in, in regards to, uh, you know, uh, mining and exploration. But when you look at it overall, I think that uh, we saw mining was held back due to the depressed uh, fuel prices, and they have uh, garnered some efficiency in the past year to 18 months to uh, really help uh, stabilize uh, this industry within the sector. Uh, Anthony, I, I'd like to just uh, have you point out to our listeners, uh, you know, it, being that we are manufacturing talk radio, why are we even talking about non-manufacturing? And, you know, over the years we've learned that uh, non-manufacturing upstream and downstream uh, has a fair amount of uh, manufacturing uh, plugged into it. So why don't you give us a, a little uh, critique on uh, how that works? Certainly. And we'll, then we'll get back to the report. When you look at the, as you mentioned, upstream and downstream, you look at the linkage in the supply chain, and there are many companies that are in manufacturing that are suppliers to the non-manufacturing 
So therefore, the non-manufacturing companies are customers of the manufacturing companies and vice versa. There are professional services and other services that are sold or uh, given to the manufacturing sector. So there, there, there is this interrelation, uh, uh, interrelationship and, and uh, symbiotic uh, uh, situation going on between the, the two sectors, and they're closely related. The other thing to keep in mind is that when you look at what comprises uh, GDP, you have approximately 80% is comprised of non-manufacturing companies, very eclectic. Uh, there are you know, some people that feel that you could debate whether or not some of these industries should be in manufacturing versus non-manufacturing, uh, and it, it has to do with the output and the services associated with it, and I'll name two. One we talked about already was mining. The other is construction. Uh, and really in construction, they're not they may be producing a finished product, but they're not really producing uh, components or anything else out there as it is more providing services to uh, to uh, go through the construction phase. But overall, uh, there is this reliance back and forth, upstream and downstream, as you said, uh, between the two sectors. Yes, it certainly is really just one uh, big event in terms of manufacturing and non-manufacturing for the United States. In terms of this report, Anthony, while a few indices, uh, indices clicked down and not significantly, uh, I see that employment uh, popped up and prices went down. Um, how is uh, employment making such a, a favorable leap in uh, in the services sector? You know, and that's that's a great thing to point out because when you look at employment coming in at the 57.8, it's up 6.4. Uh, percentage points over the 51.4 uh, for April, and uh, the most recent jobs report that came out on Friday uh, reflected 185,000 jobs added, which was below the 200,000 plus that was projected. And we have to keep in mind we're measuring change month over month, and in this uh, sector, non-manufacturing sector, we had uh, I think it was 15 industries that said they added jobs month over month. So again, we're measuring change from one month to the next. We had two industries that said they were unchanged, and only one industry said they had less jobs uh, month over month. So that's why we're seeing this uptick in the employment index, uh, contrary to what we might have seen in the jobs report. And one thing I like to point out is that we also have to look at the capacity, the labor pool, what jobs uh, what's what? What are we drawing from to fill some of these jobs? Each month we have, in short supply, labor for the construction uh, industry, as we've been talking about construction, and the labor pool's not there. We don't have the available workers to fill that, so we're not reaching full capacity of what we could potentially add into the jobs arena or the employment index for non-manufacturing. But there's an interesting point that you bring up, uh, Anthony, that we don't have the workers to fill the jobs. Is it that we don't have the workers or we don't have the skilled workers? Great because point. The, unemploy the, the unemployment is the lowest it's been in 16 or 17 years at 4.3, and yet the we still don't have enough people to fill jobs. So. My personal opinion is that it has more to do with skill versus lack of skill. You're absolutely right. It's skilled labor for sure. And, you know, not to get all philosophical, but 
the millennials of today are more focused on tech-type jobs and what they might consider the sexy-type jobs versus the trades and apprenticeship that we have seen come up through the ranks of the baby boomers. And so, therefore, it's there's not this interest in, in construction jobs for many of, of the young folks today. And so, therefore, it's uh, that, that labor pool isn't there. And it is about the skilled. It's about the skilled labor. Anthony, in this report, is different from the manufacturing report. In the manufacturing report, we have customer inventories. In this, you have inventory sentiment. Can you explain inventory sentiment to our listeners? Sure. As we know with um, uh, customer inventories on the manufacturing side, and this is something that had been around for you know, 25 years or so where uh, you had consignment inventory or holding inventory for customers, and then it would be on a demand-pull basis, and therefore they wouldn't be allocated an expense until they pulled that particular inventory versus inventory sentiment was something that the Federal Reserve had asked ISM to come up with. And what it, the, the differentiation is, how does the respondent feel about their levels of inventory and how they match up with their levels of business or their levels of demand for business? So even though you might see the inventories index decrease or increase separately from that sentiment, it's how it's matched up and how they feel about the level of inventory. So in other words, supply management folks in non-manufacturing very much demand pull. They they strive for just in time. So it almost gets to the point where any excess inventory, they feel it's way too high having it there. So... You know, I remember being in the industry myself where I did a lot of consignment inventory because I didn't want that tied up, uh, you know, that cash flow tied up. I didn't want it sitting up there cluttering shelves or anything else on any product that I might be using, specifically uh, in the chemicals arena, you know, bulky chemicals. I didn't want them sitting in a shelf somewhere. I stayed, kept that out there with the uh, manufacturer and the distributor, and I didn't get invoiced until it showed up, and that was the best way to handle it. Uh, Anthony, I noticed an interesting uh, uh, reversal here with new export orders versus import orders. And uh, new exports have gone up significantly and imports have gone down fairly significantly. Can you uh, speak to that? Sure. Well, and a lot of this is, is timing and whatnot. And again, it always I always like to see how things trend out over a period of two to three months versus one month, uh, seeing how something uh, changes. And when you look at export, export at 54.5 is still you know showing some growth, but not that high level growth, which proved to be unsustainable at 65.5. So we have a lot of things going on in the geopolitical arena, so uh, we'll have to see how it flushes out over the next few months. In regards to imports, there has been a concerted effort of um, trying to, you know, um, insource and not offshore and uh, reshoring and, and whatnot. And even though we, we had that reflected in our semiannual report, companies are, are not um, as keen on the import side, and some of it has to do with, um, you know, the buildup that we had. We saw some inventory burn-off uh, in the prior month, so, you know, it's hard to say exactly what it all is, but at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers and, and what they're reflecting, um, 
it's in sync with what the business levels are today. Well, it's a good point about the new export orders. Uh, that certainly helps our balance of uh, payment issue uh, that we seem to be always behind. You know, when we look at overall uh, what's going on in, in, in the non-manufacturing sector, um, and there's words that are coming out in the commentary about uncertainty and caution and transition and whatnot, um, it's it's what's going to develop uh, with policy, how are things going to flush out in implementation. We've had a lot of uh, uh, political noise lately. However, it doesn't seem to have negatively impacted uh, the business that, that much. Uh, one thing that did happen was um, with the uh, tariff on the lumber coming in from Canada. Uh, we saw it both in manufacturing and non-manufacturing where it affected pricing pretty much right out of the gate. So, um, you know, but for the most part, all directions indicate that the economy is strong, um, confidence out there is strong. We saw that reflected in the uh, semi-annual report with uh, capital reinvestment, which is a direct indicator of how companies feel about business going forward and what they earmark for reinvestment. And uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, hopefully there's nothing catastrophic uh, that transpires uh, you know, from a geopolitical standpoint. Uh, and, and terrorist activities and things of that nature. Hopefully uh, things stay on the rails here. One of the interesting points that uh, I, I find uh, difficult to uh, swallow is that your report, which I've been following for 35, 40 years, and uh, our business, All Metals and Forge, uh, pretty much tracks uh, your numbers. And you know, the product that we sell is a leading indicator uh, in terms of the manufacturing sector. But the numbers that I see here, and like I say, I value your numbers, but it certainly isn't consistent with what the administration is putting out. Um, and, and I know he, uh, he, Mr. President, uh, may or may not be reading uh, all the appropriate uh, stats that are coming out, but uh, you know, he's talking about uh, the jobs and we don't have jobs and we need to bring back jobs. Meanwhile, unemployment has been the lowest in almost two decades. Uh, there seems to be a misconnect. What's, what's your thought on that? Without well, us going political. <laughs> and and that's a that's a that's a great observation. And I and I feel that one thing that we don't uh, take into consideration at times when we're measuring. Uh, jobs and what's being added in the unemployment rate, how many people have left the workforce that will never re-enter, and so they're not counted. And then there's the whole uh, market of people that have developed these um, cottage industry businesses working out of the home. They're below the radar, uh, and they're contributing to the economy, but yet it's not reflected in any employment figures because they're now mm -hmm. becoming their own entrepreneurial-type self-employed folks. And, and we've seen a lot of that out there as well. You know, economists sure. have spoken about that. So, and again, you know, going back to even when we were in the uh, throes of the recession, um, that kept coming up. How many of these folks will never re-enter the job force? And uh, that's the one measurement we kind of missed there. Well, one of the numbers that I keep hearing about the point that you just made is that there are 10,000 people a day are, that are retiring. Uh, 
That's that's a huge number. It sure is. How come we're not one of them? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my wife says I my wife says I need a hobby, and I told her I have one. It's manufacturing talk radio. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, just to wrap up this segment, I know that you're in the healthcare industry, and uh, for those of you who are listening, Anthony works hard. He has. Uh, some healthcare industry investments. He used to have a restaurant. He works with the ISM, so I don't think he has much downtime. But, uh, Anthony, there's a general feeling of caution and too much uncertainty from one of your uh, respondents. How are you seeing healthcare, the healthcare industry, and is the uncertainty again the uh, revamping or repealing of Obamacare? You know, it's it's a it's a it's interesting. I'm still trying to ascertain everything myself. I will say that my observations have been that um, with Medicare specifically, and the president said he wasn't going to touch Medicare. He has been going after the Medicaid, Medi-Cal, but the Medicare has cut back on their reimbursements every year. You know, going back the last you know five six years. Consistently, they've been dropping the the reimbursement levels. And in regards to um, the Affordable Care Act, it's interesting out here in California where you can walk into a particular doctor's office and they'll have a sign saying, we don't take covered California. And not to get – I'm trying to stay out of the politics of it, but covered California is what represents uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And the reason why the physicians aren't taking it and why you're seeing some of the insurance companies backing out of it is because they can't – it's not sustainable for them. They lose money on it. And I can tell you that for me, if I was to take Medi-Cal, which is the California equivalent of Medicaid or as you might have back east or the California covered, I can't afford to do it because the reimbursement levels, I would be underwater if I looked at it on a case-by-case basis. So I'm hoping that things flush out to where health care can be provided to all across the board because the private pay has is, is been pretty consistent with the insurance companies as much as they try to cut back on things. Uh, some of the larger ones, without getting into any names, their reimbursement rates are fine. They're, they're covering costs, and you're, you can make some money at the end of the day. But the whole basis is, you want to maintain a level of patient care and be able to um, qualify and, and, and handle the costs associated with it. And let's face it, these companies are all in business to make money. Uh, and if it doesn't make sense, it's what we have today. We have this quagmire of you know, major carriers backing out of all these different um, uh, venues and sites for for Affordable Care Act, and it, the only person getting hurt is the consumer. Uh, just to digress for one moment before uh, Tim grabs the mic for me and wraps us up here, uh, you made a comment about that not to get political, and we try not to get political in manufacturing talk radio. But one of the things that Tim and I have noticed over the last six, seven, eight months, is that it's almost impossible to talk about manufacturing in this country. And I probably would say the same for non-manufacturing. It's almost impossible to talk about those two topics without it going political. It is being so affected by uh, Washington 
and, and I won't name names either, uh, that it, you can't talk about it without politics getting in the way. So I just make that note, and uh, Timmy's grabbing the mic, so Timmy, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, Lou, that uh, Anthony's comments, particularly his phrasing, flushed out, are probably the right words for this administration. And, Anthony, we appreciate you being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. You take care. And we have been we have been speaking with Anthony Nieves, who is chair for the Institute for Supply Management's Non-Manufacturing Business Survey Committee that puts out the NMI report on business for the non-manufacturing sector, a nice number at 56.9. Okay, great show, Tim. Uh, Tim Fiore, uh, the new uh, uh, chair for uh, manuf- uh, manufacturing uh, report from ISM, and Anthony Nieves for the non-manufacturing. The numbers are looking good, even though uh, non-manufacturing dropped just a hair, but it's still very, very much uh, moving forward in the right direction in spite of what you hear from Washington. Um, and uh, we also had a couple of words about that. Uh, so for those who haven't listened to it yet, uh, tune in and hear my sarcasm. Um, uh, also, I just want to make a, a comment about our next week's show that uh, airfreightbid.com uh, was Max Christensen, uh, who uh, is going to be on the show. And I, I didn't want to leave that out. And uh, Tim, I think that's uh, that's a wrap. Great. Yeah, Max uh, provides a lot of great information. Uh, when we speak with him, we've had a couple of pre-show conversations with these folks, as does Charlie Spees, which has got a very exciting operation. So tune in next week. We appreciate you listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio as always. You can find any of our shows in our library at mfgtalkradio.com. We encourage you to check out all of our previous shows for information, and we look forward to speaking with you again next Tuesday at 1 p.m. on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We appreciate uh, all of our listeners, and we look forward to every show Thanks that we Thanks for joining Thanks. us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.